Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at OrganicValley.com. Welcome to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. We can reduce carbon emissions dramatically through biomimicry. We can produce energy through biomimicry without carbon. We can trap CO2 through biomimicry. We can cool down the earth through biomimicry. Biomimicry can save the earth. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. Three years ago, Jim Hansen said we were in the process of creating a different planet and one we're not going to like very much. That was three years ago. He gave us 10 years not to figure it out, not to get the right policies in place, but to start this deflection of CO2 downward. The average American emits about 22 tons of CO2. We've got to get that back to two. And again, time is not our friend. It isn't global warming. This is planetary destabilization. Climate is not just something we'll keep in a box over here. It's something that spills out in all kinds of political and economic disorder. There's no easy way out. And I think Al Gore was right that this is, in fact, is the first global emergency since civilization's been on the planet. Soon after NASA's top climatologist James Hansen made his dire forecast in 2005, David Orr stepped through the academic looking glass to put education into action to address this planetary emergency. As the United States' foremost environmental educator, he helped form a network of 200 leading experts and strategic thinkers to construct a climate action plan for the incoming 2008 federal administration. The plan was based not on political expediency, but on the best science that can be put to work immediately to begin to halt, stabilize, and reverse climate change. Some of the most practical, actionable responses to this earth-shattering dilemma are coming from the burgeoning field of biomimicry. Everywhere that people need to conserve energy, reduce carbon emissions, or make power from wind, sun, and water, nature itself provides a wealth of tried and true solutions honed over 3.8 billion years of design innovation. Join us as leading innovators David Orr, Jay Harmon, Janine Benyus, and Stephen Dewar reveal true biotechnologies, nature's best climate change solutions. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. It's really simple. If we're going to really make a difference in this world, and we've heard over and over how it's all collapsing, and a lot of us have known this is happening for a very long time. Scientist Jay Harmon is bio-inspired. During his decades as an inventor, he looked into the natural world to provide ideas for solving our energy needs. 
At a recent Bioneers conference, he named our number one conundrum. We use carbon to overcome drag and friction. That's what we use it for. If there were no such thing as drag and friction, we'd probably only use two or three percent of the energy that we generate every year. We wouldn't need energy. If you poked your head out the window of a speeding car, you'd immediately gain a personal understanding of drag and friction. Cars, boats, trains, and planes are aerodynamically designed to reduce these forces, but most vehicles still rely on fossil fuels to solve the problem. Salmon returning upstream to spawn are well-equipped to overcome the forces of fluid resistance in a river current. Even a tiny songbird, migrating thousands of miles, uses natural forces to master the resistance of the air. They make it look effortless. Nature is incredibly good at handling drag and friction. In many cases, uses half to 95% less energy to get the same job done. It's the master designer. Her strategy for drag reduction is found in seaweed. Seaweeds adapt to let the force of waves go past. And they adapt into the shape of whirlpools. What's amazing is the world of technology and science and engineering pay no attention to this whatsoever. So I reverse engineered a whirlpool. That, that's really what I did. And I did, it took me 20 years to work that out. I did it about 20 years ago. And when I reverse engineered that whirlpool, I was able to come up with a whole lot of ways of expressing that in technologies, from turbines to pumps and blowers. And what have we done? We've created seven companies. Jay Harmon's ability to adapt nature's geometry to create efficient technology has created a wide range of products, from prize-winning sailboats to non-invasive methods of measuring blood glucose to hyper-efficient industrial fans. Cities across the United States use a biomimetic solution designed by one of Harmon's companies to prevent water supplies and huge storage tanks from stagnating. The Pax Water Mixer is shaped like the spiraling petals of a graceful lily. But this small impeller has the power to keep millions of gallons of water cleaner, with fewer and in some cases no added chemicals, by preventing thermal stratification. Using this impeller, we're able to improve the drinking water in cities without using chemicals. We use a tiny amount of power, less than you use in a small light bulb, to rotate one of these six inches long in a million gallons of water. And in less than 24 hours, we can completely mix that water and save 85% of the energy that communities are currently spending on that type of activity. Lately, Harmon believes nature's ubiquitous spiral design, the ring vortex on which his water impeller is modeled, could be a breakthrough biomimetic solution to delaying climate change. He thinks we just might be able to cool down our ailing atmosphere by mixing up the thermal layers and in the process buying a few more years to get our carbon levels under control. So biomimicry can save the Earth but it's taking time. I mean, if nature is clean, green, and sustainable. If we truly understand nature and take our inspiration from nature and build according to nature, and there's no doubt that we can re-engineer our world and create our Garden of Eden again. There's no question in my mind about that whatsoever. We can reduce carbon emissions dramatically through biomimicry. We can produce energy through biomimicry without carbon. 
We can trap CO2 through biomimicry. We can cool down the earth through biomimicry. We need global attention and we need global will. Jay Harmon is truly bio-inspired. The key thing is that 3.8 billion years, life has been turning a globe of rock and sea and a very inhospitable environment into an Eden, into essentially paradise for life, right? So can we follow this long line of species that have figured out how to create conditions conducive to life? How can we do the same thing? Janine Benyus is the godmother of biomimicry. Her book and website, asknature.org, cataloged thousands of the natural innovations that have allowed life on Earth to flourish for billions of years. When comparing human invention to nature's genius, she often finds that people do things the hard way. Take photovoltaic technology, for example. Our solar cells function nothing like the astounding way that plants create energy from sunlight. Okay, so think about what's going on on a leaf compared to our solar cells. Our solar cells take sunlight, turn it into electricity. That's really not what happens in a leaf. It's sunlight into fuel. Fuel is ATP, eventually it's starches, sugars, cellulose. Sunlight to fuel. The raw materials of that, water, CO2. So the, the holy grail really is to have sunlight gathered and then turn that into an energy carrier like hydrogen or turn it into a fuel. One of the things that a leaf has in its device is an antenna that allow the drizzle of photons to be focused to come down to that reaction center. And so there are teams that are mimicking the antennae. Our silicon cells, one of the reasons for their expense is that the silicon ingots have to be highly pure because what you're asking the silicon to do is both gather the photon and move the electron away to where it needs to be, all in one material. And that's not how life does it. Life uses chlorophyll to pull in that photon and then passes off energy and an electron to a series of molecules that then take it away and then separate that charge long enough to do work. And that simple concept of divide up the work is what led to disensitized solar cells. Disensitized solar cells are, are um, not going to take over the grid anytime soon. They're not as efficient as the best PV solar cells. They're 60% of the cost, though. They're less toxic. You can make them in thin films in a roll-to-roll -roll process, like celluloid film. They work in very low light conditions. Instead of just working at a horizontal and you know, getting that perfect sun angle, they can work vertically. So you can think about these more in like terms of wrapping building skins. They're just not as efficient yet. I mean, they're, they're the top level was 11% for efficiency. So you're probably gonna see them in small, personal, and remote applications first. However, there's all kinds of improvements going on. Michael Gritzell right now is using photonic crystals underneath the disensitized solar cells. Photonic crystals are in swallowtail butterflies. That's how they, one of the ways they create such brilliance. 
There's also the ability to put something atop the solar cell to drink in more light. Moth eyes basically have little pillars on their eyes that are a certain percentage of the wavelength of light, and light comes in, but it can't come out. And that's really important if you're a moth and you don't want to have eye shine, and you don't want predators to see you, and you're working in dark conditions and you want to drink in that light. So here you have a possibility of having a solar cell that has moth eyes on top, leaf-inspired middle, butterflies beneath. Janine Benyus. The wisest on the planet tell us that we have, in fact, crossed a carbon threshold. They give us a narrow window of time to get our worldwide act together to mitigate climate catastrophe. In the face of this largest threat ever to global security, biomimicry experts say we need a plethora of strategies deployed across the planet now. More of these game-changing strategies, including some political ones, when we return. This is True Biotechnologies, nature's best climate change solutions. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. You can download this and other programs on the radio pages at www.bioneers.org. Biological knowledge is doubling every five years. Biomimics are looking to nature for answers to specific questions, such as how can we manufacture materials using less energy, without waste and toxins? How can we effectively store increasingly larger amounts of information in increasingly smaller spaces? How can we conduct profitable, innovative, sustainable businesses without devouring the planet's natural capital? Nature has already determined what is successful and sustainable. Industry now has the scientific knowledge and instrument technology to emulate nature's technology. And at last, the political landscape has shifted in favor of this trend. Stephen Dewar is vice president of business affairs for a biomimetic design company inspired by a fluke discovery. What Frank found isn't just a new design for an airfoil. What he found was a new kind of physics. His business partner, aptly named Frank Fish, is a biologist specializing in biomechanics and fluid dynamics and one of the world's leading experts on how animals swim through water. Biomechanics and fluid dynamics are both very complex and difficult disciplines. Frank has mastered both and essentially become a new kind of specialty unto himself. Stephen Dewar tells the story of why the company is called Whale Power. Frank picked up a sculpture in a gift shop for a departing colleague and and told the shopkeeper, look at that, they put the bumps on the wrong edge of the flipper. And the shopkeeper 
knew better, called him in the back room, gave him hell, and showed him pictures and, and video that she happened to have, and she, she happened to be a nut about it. And he walked out of there saying, what the hell are the bumps doing on the front edge? Those bumps on the leading edge of humpback whale flippers are not the barnacles that the scientists told me when I made three films about it. <laughs> they are, in fact, called tubercles. And they're a really major discovery in terms of fluid flow and management of fluid flow. Doesn't matter whether it's air, gas, steam, oil, anything. These things really change the way a foil works. And that a foil can be a wing, a fan, a compressor, a turbine, a pump. Humpbacks are, as you know, pretty big. But basically, there is no reason that an animal that weighs as much as 14 Hummers should be able to be that acrobatic. I mean, these guys can swim in a 27-foot radius circle in a spiral, laying down a pattern of bubbles that'll rise up, and they will shoot up through the middle of that after the bubbles have concentrated. They call it a bubble net. Have concentrated all the little fish that they eat, things as small as capelin and things of that sort. Up goes the bubble net. The humpbacks flip over, go shooting up through it faster than the bubbles rise, and go flying through the surface after they've taken a huge mouthful of fish. You know, and you've seen them. You know, how does an animal that weighs 14 Hummers shoot into the air 25 feet? The answer has proven slippery and elegant. Nature's billions of years of R&D have come up with some extremely complex design solutions. There are folks at major universities and other places who believe that the intertubercular channels, the bumps are tubercles, and if you think of them as from the big one there to the next one, as two catamaran hulls, and the water that comes in between those two hulls gets forced into the channel in between. Just like an ordinary venturi chamber or a funnel, it speeds up. So most of the air, by the time it hits the wing, is going faster than it arrived at the turbine. Uh, we think we've really got something very practical that's going to change a lot of things. Though the specific genius of humpback whale flipper tubercles has been elusive, whale power is engaged in developing designs that could revolutionize the wind turbine industry. Their blade retrofits are producing startling improvements in efficiency and noise reduction. Fans. There are 30 billion fans in the world. Fans power the lungs of industry. They account for 14% of industrial motor system energy use. So whale power's biomimetic blade designs could save a lot of energy. Stephen Dewar quantifies the energy it takes to keep the World Wide Web up and running. The last estimate I saw says that from the up and around Washington State down to Southern California, the server industry, the Googles and the Yahoos and HPs and all the rest, consumes somewhere between one and a half and one and three quarter percent of all of the electrical generation capacity of the United States. That's a lot of fans cooling a lot of computers and burning up a lot of electricity, even in just one personal computer. The fan in a laptop consumes about as much power as the computer and screen put together. However, the average desktop model uses 1.2 times as much power to run the fan. Now you go to a server. Now you put in multiple processors, right? Or very much bigger processors. And the CPU is what makes the heat. Now you're starting to push 1.5% of the power consumed to cool it, right? But now put 100,000 of these damn things in a barn, right? And the fan doesn't cool off. It's moving hot air. 
Right. So you've now got to move a lot of air, not only into the inside of the computer, but also circulate air in, keep it cool, get the air, heat exchange going for the whole damn thing. It may be as much as 60 to 70 percent. It's hard to gauge because they don't tell you an awful lot of detail and nobody's done energy audits they make particularly public. But my guess is that it's somewhere around 60 to 70 percent of the total power in the server industry is going just to fans. So if we can get 10, 15, 20 percent, if we can do those kinds of savings, that's roughly the equivalent of, across North America of three or four nuclear plants. Stephen Dewar. Because biomimicry can reduce energy needs, increase energy efficiency, and reduce carbon emissions, David Orr says biomimicry must be part of our national energy agenda. The Presidential Climate Action Plan, or PCAP, that he first presented to the 2008 Obama administration marked a watershed in American policy and politics, or found many improbable allies. We started with assumptions that this was not a liberal or conservative agenda, not Republican nor Democrat. Uh, this is one of those things that unites both left and right. This is a national emergency. We have to get it beyond party. Secondly, that it was a security issue like none other. Um, one of the admirals that was there on our behalf talking about this said to the room that if you thought the Cold War was a major security issue, you've seen nothing yet. Climate change simply dwarfs every other security issue the nation has ever faced. There'll be no defending our borders or anything else, our national interests or anyone else's national interests for that matter, once climate change passes a certain threshold. We're still confusing security with tanks and guns and aircraft carriers and so forth. And climate security is just a radically different thing. In this case, the solar collector is a device for security. A windmill is a security device. But we have to rearrange how we think about security because of climate change. We believe that this is not an issue on a long list of issues. It, in fact, is the linchpin that connects all these other issues. If you get climate and energy policy right, uh, you'll solve or lessen virtually every other problem on the national agenda. One of the policy tools for halting and reducing CO2 is a market-based system called cap-and-trade. It was first adopted in Europe, where after some tweaking it began to show positive results. Cap-and-trade was one of the key innovations in the Presidential Action Plan. Even though a work in progress, this kind of policy is here to stay. Questions abound among PCAP experts. Exactly where should carbon caps be placed? In other words, where in the industrial process are the best places to measure carbon emissions? And how best to settle on scientifically acceptable levels of CO2 reductions so that companies whose emissions fall below that level can realize a financial benefit through the trade process? Most of the utilities prefer to have what's called a downstream cap so that they have an incentive and some piece of property to buy and sell. What, uh, what this means is a utility would acquire a, uh, a permit to emit so much carbon. If they come below that, they can trade the permit, and so it is a, it's a financial instrument. Uh, it has value. And we proposed, along with Peter Barnes and, and lots of other people, that we do not give away permits to emit carbon, that this is something that is auctioned off. And so there is a revenue stream that would begin, give or take, at 150 to $190 billion per year, and that revenue stream... Uh, we, there, there are lots of proposals out there of what to do with this, but the revenue stream that we're proposing would be kind of a hybrid that part of that would go back to the people most disadvantaged by higher fuel prices that would happen with either taxation or cap and trade. 
And so there's a social equity component to it. Where do you put the uh, cap? Uh, we opted for an upstream cap. And that means the cap occurs at the mine mouth, the wellhead, or the port of entry, not downstream. And the issue here is very simple. It's simply administration. It's a lot simpler to go to fewer mine mouths, wellheads, and ports of entry than to literally tens or hundreds of thousands of smokestacks and individual emitters, which would be a nightmare to administer. You simply couldn't do it. Upstream cap means that it works like a tax, price of energy goes up, and the effects ripple through the whole economy. There's no sector then left out. While the details of crafting a national energy agenda are decided at the highest levels of government, a key concern for any public policymaker is calculating the readiness for change at the grassroots. David Orr believes the public is ready for bold action on climate change. The public, I think, is dramatically ready for change. We've confirmed this with some private polling that we've done as part of PCAP. Uh, people say people aren't ready to sacrifice. I don't believe that. They haven't been asked to sacrifice. No one's put a vision before them that is worthy of any sacrifice. But the BBC polled people in 21 countries and found uh, in a whole series of questions, if you ask people, uh, it will be necessary to pay higher prices for fuels and so forth, overwhelmingly yes, even in the United States. Then this poll is on the, the uh, S question, are you willing to sacrifice and change lifestyles? Overwhelmingly, Americans said yes. When they were given an option that had a big vision behind it. The effects of global warming are already changing the landscape. At the same time, the political and scientific landscapes are changing to meet the challenge, from the transformation of energy policy to the scientific revolution of biomimicry. Bioneers David Orr, Janine Benyus, Stephen Doerr, and Jay Harmon believe we can count on nature to lead the way and on a big vision to guide human ingenuity and our political will. True Biotechnologies, nature's best climate change solutions. Downloads of this program and many other Bioneers radio shows are available on the radio pages at Bioneers.org or by calling 877-BIONEER. That's 877-246-6337. Visit Bioneers.org where you can learn how to attend the annual October Bioneers National Conference and local beaming Bioneers conferences. Purchase the radio series, conference CDs and DVDs, and Bioneers books. Join the thriving online Bioneers community and become a Bioneers member or make a donation. All at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Catherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production management, Aaron Leventman and Chuck Castleberry. Station relations by Creative PR. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Original recordings provided by Reference Media Group. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Rykodisc label. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at soundstrue.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. 
The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0209. Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.